Volume One, Chapter Three of Diana Tempest by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Three. As the foolish moth returning to its moloch and its burning, wheeling nigh and ever nigher, falls at last into the fire, flame in flame, so the soul that doth begin making orbits round a sin ends the same. It was a sultry night in June rather the more than a year after Mr. Tempest's death. An action had been brought by Colonel Tempest directly after his brother's death, when the will was proved in which Mr. Tempest bequeathed everything in his power to bequeath to his son John. The action failed. No one except Colonel Tempest had ever been sanguine that it would succeed. Colonel Tempest was unable to support an assertion of which few did not recognise the probable truth. No proof of John's suspected illegitimacy was forthcoming. His mother had died when he was born. It was eleven years ago. The fact that Mr. Tempest had mentioned him by name as his son in his will was overwhelming evidence to the contrary. The long-delayed blow fell at last. A verdict was given in favour of the little schoolboy. "'I'm sorry for you, I am indeed,' said Mr. Swain, composedly watching Colonel Tempest flinging himself about his little room into which the latter had just rushed, nearly beside himself at the decision of a bribed and perjured court. Mr. Swain was a stout, florid-looking man between forty and fifty, with a heavy face like a grimace that someone else had made, who laboured under the delusion, unshared by any of his fellow-creatures, that he was a gentleman. In what class he had been born no one knew. What he was now anyone could see for himself. He was generally considered by the men with whom he associated a good fellow for an ally in a disreputable pinch, and a blackguard when the pinch was over. Everyone regarded Dandy Swain with contempt, but for all that the Snowdrop, as he was playfully called, might be seen in the chambers and at the dinners of men far above him in the social scale, who probably, for very good reasons, tolerated his presence, and for even better reviled him behind his back. He had a certain shrewdness and knowledge of the seamy side of human nature which stood him in good stead. He was a noted billiard-player, a little too noted, perhaps. His short, thick, ringed hands did not mind much what they fastened on. He was not troubled by conscientious scruples. The charm of Dandy Swain's character was that he stuck at nothing. He would go down any sewer, provided there was money in it, a money that always was somewhere in everything he took in hand. Daniel Swain's career had had strange ups and downs. No one knew how he lived. The private fortune on which he was wont to enlarge, of course, existed only in his own imagination. Sometimes he disappeared entirely for longer or shorter periods, generally after money transactions of a nature that required privacy and foreign travel. But the same providence which tempers the wind to the shorn lamb watches over the shearer also, and he always reappeared again sooner or later, with his creased white waistcoat and yesterday's gardenia, and the old swagger that endeared him to his fellow-creatures. He was up in the world just now, living in style, in smart chambers strewn with photographs of actresses, and littered with cheap, expensive furniture, and plush hangings redolent of smoke and stale scent, among which Colonel Tempest was knocking about in his disordered evening dress. "'I'm sorry for you, Colonel,' repeated Mr. Swain slowly. "'But I wish you—you'd sit down and not 
brush up and down like that is not a bit of good taking on in that way, though it's damned luck all the same. Mr. Swain's conversation was devoid of that severe simplicity which society demands. Indeed, it was so encrusted and enriched with ornamental gems of expression, of a surprising and dubious character, that to present his conversation to the reader without the personal peculiarities of his choice of language is to do him an injustice, which, however unavoidable, is much to be regretted. Mr. Swain's conversation without his oaths might be compared to a burr without its feathers. The body is there, but all individuality and beauty of contour is gone. Mr. Swain filled his glass and pushed the bottle across to his friend, whose flushed face and shaking hand showed that he'd had enough already. Colonel Tempest sat down impatiently and filled his glass too. "'It's the will that did it, I suppose,' suggested Mr. Swain, "'that tipped it over.' "'Yes,' said Colonel Tempest, striking his clenched hand on the table. "'My son John,' he called him in his will. There was no getting over that. He knew it when he put those words in. He knew I should contest the succession, and he hated me so that he purged himself to keep me out of my own, and stuck to it even on his deathbed. John is no more his son than you are. A little dark fane, that is what he is. They say he takes after his mother's family. He well may do. Damn him! Mr. Swain sympathetically echoed the sentiment in a varied but not less forcible form of speech. And my son continued Colonel Tempest, his fair, weak face whitening with passion. You know my boy. Look at him. A tempest to the backbone, down to his fingernails. You can't look at him among the pictures in the gallery and not see he is bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh. He is as like the Van Dyke of Amias Tempest the Cavalier as he can be. Drives me mad to think of him cut out by a bastard. Mr. Swain appeared to be in a meditative turn of mind. He watched the smoke of his cigar curl upwards from the unshaved crater of his lip into the air. He remarked at last, "'Of course I am. My brother John died without children. Everything was to come to me and my heirs. My brother had only a life interest in the place.' "'Then I don't see how he was to blame, doing as he did, if it was entailed all along off on his son.' Mr. Swain spoke with a certain cautious interest. "'He never had a son.' If he'd disowned his wife's child, everything would have come to me. Law, said Mr. Swain, I did not understand it was so near as that. Then this little chap, this John, he's all that stands between you and the property, is he? Failing him, it still comes to you. Mr. Swain's small, tightly wedged eyes, with the expression of dissipated boot-buttons, were beginning to show a gleam of professional interest. Yes, he would, but John won't fail, said Colonel Tempest savagely. He'll keep us out. We shall be as poor as rats as long as we live, and to see him chucking our money right and left. And Colonel Tempest, who was by this time hardly responsible for what he said, ground his teeth and cursed his enemy in a paroxysm of rage and drink. Mr. Swain observed him attentively. "'Don't take on so, Colonel,' he remarked soothingly. "'Dear me, what's a little boy? What's a little boy here or there?' he continued meditatively. One more or one less. There's a sight of little kids in the world. Some wanted, some not. I've known cases, Colonel. Here he fixed his eyes on the ceiling. Cases with parents, maybe, singing up to heaven and taking no notice when little chaps that weren't wanted, that nobody took to, seemed to meet with an accident. 
get snuffed out by mistake. "'John won't be with an accident,' said Colonel Tempest passionately. "'I wish to damn he would.' "'I look at it this way,' said Mr. Swain, philosophically. "'There's things gentlemen can do, and there's things they can't. A gentleman is a party that can't do his dirty work for himself, though as often as not he has a deal on his hands that must be shoved through somehow. The thing is to find parties who'll take what I call a personal interest, if it's made worth their while. Now, about this little boy that no one wants, and is a comfort to nobody, it's quite curious the things little boys will do. Out in boats alone, outriggers now as dangerous as can be, or leaning out of railway carriages in tunnels. Law, you never know what they won't be up to, little rascals. They're made of mischief. Forty thousand a year, is it, he's keeping you out of, and yours by right? Well, I don't say anything about that, but all I say is I, I have friends I can find that are open to a bet. What's the harm of betting a thousand pounds to one sovereign that you never come into the property? It ain't likely, as you say. What's the harm of a bet, provided you don't mind risking your money? Let's say, just for the sake of, of argument, that there was ten bets. Ten bets at a thousand to one that you never come in. Ten thousand pounds to pay, if you come in after all. What's ten thousand pounds to a man with forty thousand a year? Mr. Swain snapped his fingers. And no trouble to nobody. Nothing to do but to pay up quietly when the time comes. It don't concern you who takes up the bets, and you don't know either. You know nothing at all about it. You lay your money, and look here, Colonel, you mark my words, some way or somehow, some time or other, that boy will disappear. The two men looked steadily at each other. Colonel Tempest's eyes were bloodshot, but Mr. Swain had all his wits about him. He never became intoxicated, even at the expense of others, if there was money in keeping sober. "'Curse him!' said Colonel Tempest in a hoarse whisper. "'He should not get in my light!' The child was to blame, naturally. Mr. Swain did not answer, but went to a side-table on which were pens, ink, and paper. Some things, if done at all, are best done quickly. End of Volume 1, Chapter 3